Everyone, good to be back with you, and uh, thank you for those who've prayed for, for the new guy with shingles. I used to think shingles were things on a roof, not on a face, but uh, it's good to be back with you. We're going to uh, shift gears a little bit today, uh, continuing with our Follow Me series, but a different kind of message. We're not going to look at a specific text, but we're going to talk about this important topic about gender and gender roles. So today's message is going to be more of a biblical overview, but hopefully we'll find it to be helpful and timely. This topic is very important in our world today, uh, not just because of issues between men and women, but even gender itself, and uh, whether uh, we, uh, we, we ought to think that the gender that we're born with is the one that we should stick with, and there's lots of discussion and um, uh, certainly discussion about that topic today. So I'm hoping that we will find this helpful. And I want to start by thinking about Jesus himself, because we're talking about following Christ and ask this question. Is this an appropriate question to ask in church? Was Jesus sexist? And I ask that question because clearly, obviously, he chose, trained, and commissioned only male apostles, didn't he? I mean, there's no doubt about that. That's historical fact. It's clear from Scripture that that's what he did. When we did our message on the choosing of the 12, we didn't take time to ask this question, but I'm sure for some of you, hopefully for some of you, that was a bit of a burning question. Well, why did Jesus choose only male apostles? And there's a few reasons why that might be. Uh, It might be that he was a male chauvinist, which we would say, well, whatever he is, he's God. So we'll, we'll learn from him. Some would say that it, the reason he chose only male apostles is because of the culture that he lived with and in. That he would have, under normal circumstances, chosen male and female uh, apostles, but because of the culture that he lived in at the time, he wasn't able to do that. So that's a really interesting question. Um, and we're going to just let that sit and linger for a moment. But I do want us to see this, that Jesus treated women radically. So uh, we might want to consider the culture of his time and think about what it was like for women in particular, but what we do know is that Jesus didn't treat women the way most men treated women. So I want to show you some examples of that. Jesus gave women a voice. Uh, You might remember the story of the woman who uh, had uh, an illness and Jesus was walking through a crowd, and she said in her heart, if I could just touch his garment, uh, I could be healed. And so she squeezes through the crowd and touches Jesus and immediately is healed. And then Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And it's not because he didn't know. It's because he was giving this woman the opportunity to testify about what God had done for her. So then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. Why trembling with fear? Because she as a woman had been called out to publicly testify about what she had done. And it became a public testimony about what God had done. And that's because Jesus gave her a voice. Uh, Jesus spoke to women intelligently. We saw this last week in uh, the uh, story in John chapter 4 when Jesus is speaking to the uh, Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. And he has an intelligent conversation. And the, uh, the disciples come back from getting food and they see Jesus talking to this woman and they're surprised. They're not used to seeing a man have an intelligent, uh, mutual conversation the way that Jesus was. But that's what he was doing. He treated women respectfully. 
One of the stories that I see this most evidently is in John chapter 8, where a woman has been caught in adultery. What is that, what is that like to be a woman who's caught in the, in the act of adultery, it says in John chapter 8? She's dragged out in front of Jesus, and of course, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to say something wrong so that they can accuse him and, and chastise him for it. What does Jesus do? Here's this woman standing right in the center of attention, and if she's caught in the act of adultery, perhaps not wearing very much, and the shame that, has, that was being poured out upon her, and the, everyone's attention on her in the center of this crowd, and Jesus bends down and writes on the ground. And we say, oh, well, we should figure out what Jesus wrote. I wonder what he wrote. That's not the point. The point is that he got everyone's eyes off of this woman who, who is standing there, perhaps unclothed, and got them looking at something else. Why did he do that? Because he was being respectful to her in spite of the circumstances. He was being kind and compassionate to her. Uh, Jesus welcomed the company and ministry of women. We see this in the story in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is at Martha and Mary's home. And Mary, of course, is making this great meal. But Mary sat at the Lord's feet. That was the posture of a disciple or a student. And Jesus didn't send Mary away and say, you can't sit there, you're a woman. But he welcomed her to sit at his feet and to listen. In fact, he applauds her later when Martha comes and says, hey, tell my sister to help. And Jesus said, no, actually, Mary's chosen the better thing. And so he welcomed her presence before him. Then Matthew 27, Jesus is being crucified. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, <clears throat> excuse me, to care for his needs. So even though there weren't uh, official apostles of Jesus who were women, there were many women who followed Jesus and who were part of this entourage that he traveled with, and Jesus was very grateful and receptive to the ways that they served and cared for him and were part of his circle of friends. And then finally this one, Jesus honored women. That was radical in that culture. He says in Matthew 15 to a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman, who expressed her faith in him, and he just said, woman, you have great faith. And then, I love this, Jesus, after rising from the dead, appeared first to the women who had followed him. John would say first to, uh, to Mary, outside of, uh, of the tomb, the empty tomb, and then later to a group of women before he ever appeared to his own disciples, he appeared to these women, who, by the way, were the brave ones who'd come to the cross to support Jesus and to be with him in his suffering. So these are just a few simple examples of the way that Jesus treated women radically. Now, when Jesus was questioned about the topic of divorce, here in Mark chapter 10, he did something that's really important, something that we all need to do, and that is that he took the listeners back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I'm calling this creation order. That's kind of a theological term, but when Jesus talked about divorce, he took people back to creation. So creation order is something that God had made. He had created some things before there ever was sin, before there ever was a curse. Uh, God had made some things, and we're going to see he made those things very good, so when we want to understand, well, what is, what is gender? What is marriage? 
Or even a topic like work. Some of you may not believe this, but work was something that God had built into his good creation. Maybe you thought it was part of the curse that happened after sin. But no, actually work was there before sin was there. God created us to be, as I tell my kids, creative and productive. We were made for that. Uh, So this is what Jesus is doing on the topic of divorce, um, and it's really helpful to us as well. And so we're going to actually do that. I want us to open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at a few verses there, and then chapter 2, and then chapter 3. Creation order. There are some realities that God built into his good creation that can help us understand God's heart and his desire for good things today. Then there are some things that became real after sin, when the curse or the fall came upon the earth after Adam and Eve sinned against God. And we can differentiate between those two things. We can say, okay, this was before sin. This is what God did when he said, this is really good. And then this came after sin, This is something that was produced by uh, the sinful, fallen condition of humanity apart from God. So that's what we want to do. So starting in chapter 1 of Genesis in the creation account, and uh, look at verse um, 26, and I want you to notice the pronoun here, God said, let us, it's interesting, let us make mankind in our image. In our English Bibles, the translation has God singular. God said, not God's or the God's said. No, just God singular said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is God's good creation. We see that down in verse 31. God had already said that the things he'd made day by day were were good. And then in verse 31, he saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So what do we learn from this? First of all, there are two distinct kinds of human beings. Not three, not five, not just one, but two. There are men and women. There are boys and girls. There are male and female. This is God's design, his good design. We see that both were equally made in the image of God. That's so clear in verse 27. God made humanity in his image. He made humanity male and female. That means that in terms of our standing before God, uh, the essence of who and what we are as human beings, there is no difference in equality between men and women. And then as we saw in verse 31, God could look at this, this gender creation of his and say, this is very good. Chapter 2 of Genesis provides more details for the creation of Adam and Eve. So if, um, if you look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living being. Uh, Then look down. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, notice here he's got work to do, taking care of the garden, but he says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord said, notice this, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God had formed all the, out of the ground all the wild animals. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. More work for Adam to do. Uh, but then in verse 20, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. The beauty of this, by the way, is that it clearly distinguishes between humans and animals. That's something that the scientific community wants to minimize in our day. Uh, they, the naturalists, those who uh, w- want to believe that God was not behind uh, the universe and our world, uh, that we're simply animals. Clearly, God is saying something different. No, uh, human life and animal life is completely distinct and, and different. No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep, uh, deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So what do we learn from Genesis chapter 2? Well, an obvious observation here in this greater detail is that Adam was created before Eve. Um, Why was that? Why did that happen? Uh, Verse 18 tells us that it was not good to have a man without a woman. Now, I, I know what some of you ladies are thinking now. If God had only made Eve first... Surely everything would have been fine. Well, no, I think, I think the lesson of this chapter is that, um, that for both men and women, in, in terms of us being in the image of God, that there's something missing when you just have a man or when you just have a woman. Together, men and women, whether it's in a family or in the church, we exhibit a more full picture of the reality of who God is. Now, one of the ways that I know that this has played out in my life is in raising children. Because there have been times, uh, well, if you can imagine, uh, some of my kids are sitting here. uh, There have been times when I was quite frustrated with my children and uh, uh, was perhaps venting my feelings to my wife. And she, in her wisdom, in her godliness, was able to help me see a better way forward than the one that I was planning to take. In other words, together, because we collaborate as parents, because we work together, because there's times when uh, when we bring our, our, our thoughts and our voices together, our kids have seen a better picture of God than if all they had was their dad. And maybe then all they had was their mom. So there's... There's something interesting here, and I I realize one of the challenges to me talking this way is that some of you are single. Some of you have never been married, maybe wished that you were or someday will be. 
Some of you have been married and maybe divorced or uh, your marriage broke down in some way. Some of you perhaps have lost a spouse to death. Now, I would say that most of you who find yourselves living in that way feel an ache of some kind, that, that something is missing, and it's the reality of being human in this world and in this life. There is an ache. There is something missing. But of course, that's true for those of us that are married. Ultimately, we know that our identity is found in Jesus. Those of us that try to make our identity about a spouse or our marital status are actually wrong to do so. To be a follower of Jesus is to say that I, my identity is bound up with him. I am in Christ. And of course, the ultimate story of the Bible is that we all, as the people of God, the ultimate isn't that we find a human spouse, but the ultimate story of God is that we, as the people of God, become the spouse of Jesus, and we find fulfillment in him. So even though there's this element of, of gender creation in which God looks at the man and says, there's something wrong here. The, the, it's not good for this man to be alone. This man needs a woman, and I, I really believe if he would have created Eve first, he would have said the very same thing, this woman needs a man. That doesn't mean that if you're not married uh, that you can't have a fulfilled human life. You absolutely can. But there is this reality in God's creation. And it's a compatibility. No helper was found suitable for Adam. It tells us that when God created the genders, he created them to fit together. Uh, that's obviously true in a physical sense, in a sexual sense. That's how uh, children are born to us. And the pleasure of sexual intimacy is about a man and a wife fitting together. But in so many other ways as well, in terms of personalities and passions and strengths, there is a compatibility that God built into male and female. This is God's good creation. This is creation order. And so if there's things here that we don't like or that don't appeal to us, we have to remind ourselves that this is the story of God's word. This is what it tells us. This is what God made and said, it's very good. Now, look at, let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the story of Satan coming into the beautiful garden that God had made and tempting Eve and convincing her to eat the fruit that God had forbidden for them to eat. Most of us are familiar with that story. But I want us to see what God says to Eve. Verse 16 of chapter 3. To the woman he said... I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is not creation order. What God is describing here is not God's ideal. This is not God saying, this is the way I want it to be. What God is describing here is the outcome of sin. Not just people making bad choices that hurt one another, but the destructiveness of living in a world where people have rejected God's good creation and his good rule, and they've said, we want it our way, and God says, sadly, because you've wanted it your way, this is what it's going to look like. Two things he says to the woman. The woman, 
would long for her husband. Desire. That's a bit of a strange expression because uh, Eve was not a single woman. She had a husband. So what does God mean when he says to Eve, who's still married and will continue to be married, and Adam and Eve are going to have many children, what does it mean when he says to her, your desire for or your longing will be for your husband? There's a couple of possibilities. One is it just simply would be a a longing that she wishes she had, but that doesn't make a lot of sense when she already had a husband. Genesis 4 uses the very same expression to describe the ways that sin desires to control us. Genesis 4, verse 7. Have a look at that if you want. God warning Cain, who was filled with anger and hatred toward his brother, and God comes to Cain and says, be careful, Cain. Sin's desire, longing, is for you. It was a longing to control. So there's a couple of possibilities I see in this in this statement that God makes to Eve. Remember, this is not creation order. This is God saying, okay, now because of sin, this is what it's going to look like for you. You're going to long either to exert control over your husband, or even if you're married, you are going to have an ache in your soul for something that you don't have. You are going to wish and long for a husband who would somehow know how to sacrificially love and care for you, but you're probably not going to find it. And that leads right into the second point, man would rule over the woman. This is not creation order. Keep that in mind. This is not creation order. This is God saying, here's the consequences for what you've done. Do you realize what this is going to look like in the cultures of history which are dominated by power, now this male gender, this larger, stronger gender is going to dominate the weaker, physically weaker gender of the woman. And that is the story of history. It's just a hundred years ago, just over a hundred years ago in Canada and even less time in the United States that women, women could even vote I mean, think about our culture. We think of our culture. I mean, we are the most advanced culture of the world. It wasn't that long ago, and many would argue to this day, that women still do not have the same freedoms and opportunities as men do. Distinguish between creation order and what we see here in chapter 3 of Genesis, the results of sin and the fall of humanity. So I want to ask this interesting and maybe somewhat uh, difficult question. The personal question, because now I'm asking you. Do your gender views and practices reflect God's perfect creation? I like this little puzzle piece here. Uh, Blue, red, man, woman. And again, uh, when we're talking gender here, Uh, We're not simply talking about marriage, all right? Because one of the things we're really wanting to talk about this morning is gender within the church. Um, So uh, some of us come to church with our spouses, but together as men and women in one body, we want to exhibit this this kind of unity between male and female. And I think this puzzle piece is really helpful. It, It speaks to me of compatibility. 
It's to, it speaks to me how to have just one gender or just the other gender leaves something lacking. In terms of God's image, I didn't mention this earlier, but don't you love some of those passages where God attributes to himself motherly qualities? Uh, one of my favorites, Psalm 91, where the psalmist is writing about God and God's comfort and how God is, God is going to cover me with his feathers. And Jesus says something very similar before his death when he literally weeps over the city of Jerusalem and his own people. And he says, how I wish I could have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. I love that because that is God attributing to himself motherly or we might say female qualities. Uh, women never think that because you're a woman, you, you aren't actually typifying and, and glorifying the attributes of God by being a woman. You are. God is, he gives himself male pronouns, but he's not human and he's not male. He's spirit. And both men and women, and especially together, we exhibit the image of God. We have the puzzle pieces side by side. I believe scripture, even in creation order, would say that the man is a servant leader in this relationship. It's what God teaches in his word regarding the home and marriage, and it's what we're going to see he teaches in his word regarding the church family. Man as servant leader, woman not behind the red piece, not behind the blue piece, the red piece not under the blue piece, the red piece beside, complementing. The woman not, not hidden, but right alongside, shoulder to shoulder, serving God effectively and passionately. In fact, God said about the woman that he created for the man in chapter 2 of Genesis, I'm going to make a helper compatible to him. Now, we read that and we think, well, helper, that kind of sounds like, so, so she's what, his servant? First of all, guys, it says something about us when, when, when God says, this, this guy needs help. That's what God said. This man needs some help. And always remember this, that the very same word that God attributes to the woman that he's going to make as the helper of the man is the very same word that God attributes to himself in the Old Testament when he says, I am the helper of Israel. So a woman is not under the man, she's not hidden behind the man, she's side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Yes, he has this uh, responsibility to be servant leader, but she active and functioning and demonstrating the nature of God by her activity. So is that the way you understand gender? Is it rooted in God's good creation, this creation order? Or do your gender views and practices reflect the values of a fallen world? When I grew up, I was in high school, uh, there was a time when my parents hosted a church, a very small church in our home. So we would, we would have our little church service right there in the living room, 15, 20, maybe 25 people at most. And once a month, we would have a potluck, which is kind of nice because uh, it wasn't very far to the dining room from the living room. 
And there was a man in this congregation who's probably lucky I was 15 at the time and not the age I am now, who after our little church service would stay planted comfortably on the couch, and when he felt it was time, he would call out to his wife, who was busy helping with food in the kitchen, and he would say, I'm ready now for my plate of food. Never got off the couch and expected and demanded right in full view of all of us, flaunted this perspective on gender that was not rooted in God's good creation, was rooted in the sinfulness of the fall. That's what that was. Because when we come to Scripture, we find that God would say to the man, I've given you the responsibilities to lead, so lay down your life and serve. This man never read those verses or chose not to believe them. His gender views and practices were a reflection of the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, we can ask ourselves pretty simply, and I'll I'll throw these puzzle pieces up in these two ways, and I was thinking I should have had one where, uh, you know, perhaps one gender is hidden behind the other. Ask yourself, how does this work for you? What what is your attitude towards the opposite gender? If you're married, what is your attitude, your practices, the way you treat your spouse? The story of history is women being lost behind the man or ruled over by the man. That is not creation order. Now, how are we doing for time? I want you to put your thinking caps on because I want to ask this question. Do the biblical instructions about gender, because we're going to get into some of these now, describe God's perfect intention for men and women in the home and in the church? There are some today who say anything that God says in his word about gender is culturally bound. The only reason that the biblical writers wrote about those things is because of the dynamics of gender in their culture. It was not God's ideal. They were not able to see beyond the confines of their culture to a day when women get to vote, when women can be prime minister or president. And so they wrote these instructions from that perspective. That's not really the mind and heart of God you believe that? Or would we say this? No, there's biblical instructions about gender that describe God's perfect intention for men and women in the home and in the church. Here's another thing to consider. Do the biblical instructions about gender provide temporary instruction for the sinful cultures of world history? This is where I want you to put your thinking caps on, and we're not going to look specifically at texts from the Old Testament. But there's some really weird things that God commands in the Old Testament law about men and women. There's an instruction for for the Jewish army about what they can do if they capture women in battle. And we read those verses and we think, oh my, don't read those in your sociology class, class this week. But what's happening there? What's happening is the second blurb. 
God actually gave instructions to his people that if you go into battle and you win a victory, and there are these women, maybe women who'd never been married before, if you were from another nation, there was no quibbling or discussing about what you're going to do. You're going to either kill those women or you're going to capture them and turn them into sex slaves. You will either rape them and kill them or you will capture them and take them to be your permanent sex slave. Not a wife. So what God is doing in some of these instructions is really the second. He's providing temporary instruction for the sinful cultures of world history. Deuteronomy 22 has instruction for what happens if a, if a man rapes so, uh, an unmarried and, and uh, unengaged woman. And we think, oh, I think the Old Testament said he should be stoned. Actually, not in this case. In this case, Deuteronomy 22 says the man goes to the father, pays the bride price, takes this girl home, she becomes his spouse. And we think, who would want to marry a man who did that to them? You know what? In that culture, think about what would happen to that woman if it was the other way. Bring the man before the town council. Tell everybody what he'd done. Give him the death penalty. And there's no way of doing all that without people finding out who the girl was that he did this to. And if they found out who the girl was, her life was over. Because no one else is going to marry her. She's damaged goods in their mind. The most gracious thing that could happen to this girl in spite of the horrific event that took place was that she would become a wife and a mother, that she would have the protection of a home. And I know this sounds bizarre to us, but if you compare what God said to the nations around Israel, you realize, wow, God was being kind. But that's not creation order. That's God managing the sinfulness of humanity. That's not God's ideal. What about the things we find in the New Testament? And this is where I want us to consider, where do we see creation order in the instructions that God gives about men and women in the home and in the church? 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. This actually isn't creation order. This is Godhead order. This is the order of the Trinity. The head of every man is Christ. This is God saying, God, or Jesus, the Son of God, is in authority over humanity. Then he's saying that, that men have this role of authority in the home over women, wives. But then he says that God, or you could say God the Father, has authority over Jesus. It's not creation order, that's actually something even higher now. Uh, Paul is saying that gender distinction is based on something higher even than God's creation, it's God himself. God himself is being modeled in gender. 1 Corinthians 11, notice this one. Paul's going to He's going to speak of creation order. He says, man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's true in creation. But then notice what he says. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. 
So this is an important passage that's speaking about, theologians call it headship, this role responsibilities and gender. And Paul is saying there's creation order here, but don't use creation order, men, to impose yourselves over women or to be authoritarian. He's saying to the men, always remember, guys, you were born from a woman. 1 Corinthians 14 does not actually allude to any creation order, and many would say uh, that it's speaking of very specific uh, situations in the Corinthian church. Paul in this chapter is talking about how uh, some would prophesy and others would have to interpret or verify that prophecy. And so this, many would say, this passage is speaking specifically about that process. Then 1 Timothy chapter 2. This one's tough. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's creation order. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. That's not creation order. That's actually the events of the fall. The woman was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, folks, in our culture, it is really hard for us to to grapple with what Paul is saying because it sounds like male chauvinism. It sounds like he's saying, you can't trust a woman. And the danger here is that we will erase this scripture from our Bibles. And we always have to remember, scripture says that if we want to really honor the Lord... We will tremble at his word. Now, thankfully for me, it's not my job to unfold this text for you this morning. We don't have time for that. I'm simply wanting you to see that in the places where the New Testament provides instruction about men and women, it does so usually based on creation order or as we've seen, the order of the Trinity himself. And then notice this one, Ephesians 5, which speaks of specifically of marriage. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This isn't creation order, now this is redemption order. This is Jesus saying that, uh, God saying that he wants Christian marriage to be a reflection of redemption, of God giving his life for his people. What's the point? The point is that Paul, when he writes these things, makes it very difficult to simply dismiss and say, ah, cultural, because he roots his teaching in things that are not cultural. The nature of God and his triunity, creation order in which God made and created and said, this is good. And then in this case, Redemption itself. He roots his teaching about gender in things that are timeless and good. And so we must be careful not to simply dismiss them as cultural. So I want to begin to summarize now. And I've got seven summaries to share with you. Number one, God created male and female, which was very good. Uh, Let me say this, that we are living in a time where increasingly uh, we're probably going to be confronted with this reality uh, whereby people are seeking to transition from the gender of birth to the opposite gender. How do we deal with that? 
Let me first say that because we live in this sinful, fallen world, and, and quite frankly, all of us have struggled with some aspect of our, our own lives. Maybe it was our upbringing, or we've struggled with depression or anxiety, or we've, uh, we've struggled with our identity and other aspects of life. We should not be surprised that there will be some, especially when culture is pressing this upon us, when there will be some who feel they ought to transition, or we may even meet someone at some point who has transitioned. What if someone who's had a gender transition shows up here to learn about Jesus from us? What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is what we learned last week, compassion. It's the harvest. It's lift your eyes and see the love of God for these people. Don't be surprised that people struggle. Everyone in this world apart from Jesus, even we as followers of Jesus, struggle with our identity. So people are going to struggle with that. What we will never do in this church, and no Christian church ought to, give credence to this idea that if you want to transition, that's okay. Because let's be honest, folks, that that is a a rebellion against the Creator. That is a sin. God made gender. He placed gender upon each of us. So we want to be clear. We can be compassionate to people who are struggling. We can share the good news. We can love people. But we will never come to a place where we give the green light for people to transition because that is a rebellion against the Creator. Number two, male and female are equally made in the image of God and equal before God. The puzzle pieces are side by side, uh, men and women equal. Number three, Male and female are different but complementary. I have a book on my shelf that I've never read, but it's got a great title. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Not a Christian book, but it captures this reality. Any of us who are married know that's true. If I would have written it, I would have said, men are from Earth, women are from Mars. And that's our struggle, right? We get us. Hard to get the other gender. We are different But part of it is learning to celebrate the ways that God has made us different and celebrate that complementary nature of our relationships. Male and female best reflect the image of God together. As I mentioned earlier, this doesn't mean that a single person is incomplete because in Christ we can be fully complete. Ultimately, we will be married to Christ. Uh, Nevertheless, this is what the Bible shows us. Male and female represent the unique and distinct persons and roles of the Trinity. I take this primarily from 1 Corinthians 11.3, where God speaks of the headship between a man and a woman rooted exactly in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So gender, this complementary nature of men and women, this, uh, this distinctiveness, is actually a picture of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, who is three in one, perfectly united, and yet Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal, but, but different, having different roles. Think about, if you know much of Scripture, you know that the, the Holy Spirit is fully equal to God. The Spirit of God is God, and yet His roles in redemption and in creation are very different than the roles of the Father and the Son. Number six, the union of male and female reflects the unity of the Trinity. 
primarily in marriage. I would say that even in our churches collectively, the way that we worship and serve and live together as male and female is a beautiful depiction of the unity of the Godhead. And then finally this, I love this. Male and female reflect the beauty of Christ and the gospel, but in different ways. And ultimately, that's why we're here, right? It's not about my glory. It's not about let's pump up the men or let's pump up the women. It's about let's, let's make Jesus known. Let's show people how beautiful and glorious he is. And I'm arguing here that we do that in slightly different ways. As women embrace their role in the home and in the church under the authority of male leadership, they represent Christ who submitted himself to his Father in order to provide redemption for the world. Now, I couldn't have set that point up better than what Deb did earlier when she was describing the lion and the lamb. I mean, it's inconceivable that this conversation would ever have happened because Jesus is God and he's fully united with his Father. But, but couldn't he have said to his Father, you're sending me? Don't you know who I am? I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a throne beside you that belongs to me. Don't you know who I am? You're going to send me to become human and to suffer? But he never said that. Philippians 2 says, though he was equal with God, made himself of no reputation. So when someone submits to a God-given authority, they get to be like Jesus. I loved playing street hockey as a kid and just date myself a little bit, but when I played street hockey, sorry, but I was Wayne Gretzky. You, you could be whoever you wanted, but I'm Wayne Gretzky. And this is what we get to do in the church. Both men and women get to come here every Sunday and every day of our lives as we function within marriage or within a church family. We get to say, I get to be Jesus. I get to submit myself to the will of God. I get to submit myself to the plan of God and creation. I get to be Jesus. Hey, the reality is, I'm still getting to know lots of people here, but I think I can pretty confidently say that there are women in this church who are capable of serving as elders in this church. Wise, godly, know the scriptures, good with people. The reality is, and, uh, and maybe uh, those of us who are elders might feel a little intimidated by the fact, they might even do a better job. When I was in Bible college and took homiletics preaching class, there was a great debate because we were a brother in Bible college whether the girls should preach in front of the guys. Thankfully, the debate was uh, ended and everyone preached to everyone. It was great. The reality was the girls were way better preachers than us guys. That, that's just the reality in that class. When we function as a church upholding these gender distinctions, and we do it by having men as elders of our church and men as primary teachers of the church, we're not saying that women can't do it. It's not true. What we're saying is we want to glorify Jesus Christ. And God and his creation of gender and his teaching in the New Testament gives women this great privilege to do what Jesus did submit themselves to God 
and to serve. And look at the results. The results of the submission of Christ to the Father resulted in the salvation of millions upon millions of human beings resulted in Him being given the greatest glory in all the universe where God would say every knee will bow. Don't ever be ashamed to glorify Christ by being a woman. Secondly, as men embrace their role in the home and in the church as servant leaders, they represent Christ who did not demand to be served, but laid down his life in order to provide redemption for the world. Have you ever thought of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, letting human beings slap him and pull out his beard and spit in his face and say, prophesy? Have you ever thought about Jesus, who was the God of creation, standing before disciples who are arguing about which of them was the greatest? Have you ever wondered at Jesus, who got down with a basin of water and removed the sandals of his disciples' feet and washed the sweat and the smell and the dirt from them? Men? This is how we glorify Jesus. Not by puffing out our chest and saying, well, it's a, I'm, I'm so glad I'm a man. I'm so glad that men have been given this role of leadership. No, that doesn't work at all. You're not representing Christ at all. But when we recognize that the God-given leadership that's been placed upon us is a servant leadership. It is a call to give up our lives, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And only then do we bring glory to Jesus. Not because I'm a man. Because I'm a man who gives up his life for my wife, for my church family. That's men when we glorify Jesus Christ. This is our great privilege as men and as women to point people to Jesus, to show them the glory and the beauty of Jesus in different ways, but so that he will be known and praised in all the earth. I'm going to stop there, and I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, we didn't get to get into all the details. That's probably going to come later. Um, I wanted to set up the theology behind those things this morning. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come and lead us in worshiping Jesus, and then I'll come again after and pray. God, we thank you for who you are. I pray, Father, that as a church family, we would honor you, we would fear the Lord, and we would tremble at your word. And yet, Lord, some of the things we find in it are, are hard to understand and especially when compared to our culture today. So we, we pray for wisdom, Lord. And we pray for this topic of gender, that we might navigate it well as a church, and we need your, your help, your Holy Spirit, to direct us into all truth and into all grace. Uh, Lord, I pray that our heart's desire would be simply to bring glory to you. Uh, help us, Lord, to do that uh, with the gender you have given us, with the gifts and abilities you've given us, I pray that our heart's cry would be simply to make you known and show you to be great. Teach us, Lord, what it means, whether we're men or women, boys or girls, to submit to you and to one another for your glory. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.